708 on CJD. Welcome to Today's Entrepreneur, a program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business. My name is Dan Delmar, along with my co-host, Fuller Landau's Josh Miller. How are you, Josh? Excellent, Dan. Now, as we said uh, in the promos all week, it's a spicy edition of the show. It very much is, <laughs> as we have uh, the owner and originator and founder of The Spice Station. Uh, Peter Balawanian, welcome to Today's Entrepreneur. Thank you for having me. So first we begin, of course, uh, just by telling us a bit about uh, yourself and your business. Well, I'm a Montreal native, and um, I basically didn't do spices my whole life. I started off and I graduated in Concordia in film and went to California looking to become a big filmmaker, just like everybody else does. Uh, got myself busy, busy for 20 years almost working in the entertainment industry. But while I was doing that, one of my passions was, was to, uh, to pick up spices everywhere I went. And it was, uh, it was one of those things where I think it grew, it grew into me from my family. Uh, and I would just pick up spices from, you know, everywhere I travel. And one day I just, uh, I just wanted to open up a spice shop. And I did. And so what kind of, I know, where you are today, what do you sell? What kind of spices? Just so that the, the listener has an idea of what the Spice Station store is today. Well, it's more, it's more than just spices. We sell pretty much anything in the dry world goods. So we have spices, herbs, salts, chilies, teas, sugars. Uh, we do our own custom blends. We have over 75 different blends, which means uh, we, we come up with new ideas on how to make people's cooking lives easier. And uh, anything, anything you could think of, dried lime juice powder, beet powder, you know, uh, it gets creative after a while. It really becomes more of an art when you start thinking about what you're collecting. And that was one of the, I think, one of my strengths is, is because I didn't have any limitations. I, I kind of went after anything I can get my hands on and brought it in, and it was all high quality, and people started uh, enjoying it. So how do you take the leap from entertainment world in LA to a retail spice store? Well, uh, I needed something grounded, honestly. The working, I was... Pun intended. I, I've been working <laughs> as a producer most of my life. Uh, and, I, and I felt like it was just, the higher I would get in my, in my jobs, in my positions, the more I would, I would, or I would say less I would enjoy, just because I would be dealing with a lot of people that wanted everything, and I had to deliver. And uh, I just needed something that made me feel good again. You know, I, I started in entertainment. It was v I was very happy doing it. And I, it was a passion about, of mine. But when, when it started getting to a point where, I mean, I'm, my last gig, I produced a show at Carnegie Hall. And then I was like, I'm not even enjoying this anymore. You know, so when I told my wife at the time that uh, I'm going to open up a spice shop, she didn't understand what that meant. She she was kind of like, uh, okay, uh, I don't know, I don't know what do you mean by that. You He's know? become a little loopy. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I just kind of stuck to it, and I and I had an idea. I, w I was watching a lot of food shows too. I mean, obviously the food shows have been you know intense over the years. It's become more and more entertaining, and it's it's helped build people's visions on how to cook at home. And I believe that uh, when I would watch the shows and I'd see like, how do they get that ingredient? Where do they get that ingredient from? You know, and I started thinking about it like a producer and I started doing my research. And uh, one thing led to another. Next thing you know, I'm at like Trader Joe's with a notepad comparing prices on how much they're selling basil by the pound. And I realized like we were getting ripped off as a consumer. And I mean, I, that was another part of it. I was like really upset that I was paying, you know, because I'm a cook too at home. And 
I was paying all kinds of prices for really basic, simple things. Did you figure out why the prices were so high in these larger chains? Well, the markups are really high in spices. It's really, really high. And I think the, the chains don't really care how much they put up on top as long as they're selling it. So it's a demand. It's related to demand. So if basil and and bay leaves and oregano are being packaged the same way, and they're really light. So you can fill up a, a jar and have maybe 0.4 ounces of bay leaves or even less and sell it for the same price as you're selling salt because then salt is heavy. Mm-hmm. And it's all about the packaging. It's the container. And so I, d- I kind of like took the container out. I package everything in, the, in resealable bags. So it makes it so that you pay for the product and not for the packaging. Now... Coming back to the beginning, you're you're still you're in entertainment. You have the you have this passion now. You have this uh, you know you love spices. You see that the consumers getting uh, getting rooked uh, for for whatever they're buying. Then the idea just comes. You know, I should open my own spice shop. You got to find a location. It's not everywhere that you can have a local spice shop. It's it's uh, location is is really everything. I mean, other than having a great uh, concept, if you don't have a right spot for it, you know, nobody will come. And, you know, you, it'll be a miss. So I really started looking and scouting. And, again, my producer background helped me out quite a bit because as a producer, I know what I'm looking for. And I found a spot uh, on Sunset Boulevard in a, in a neighborhood called Sunset Junction, which is in Silver Lake, where I live. It, was, uh, it wasn't even on the street. Like, the, the store itself was behind a building. So it was really hidden, and you wouldn't even see the store. But I loved it. I, I thought it was perfect because I thought like it would really represent what the business is, which is spices and taking a journey. And, you know, it was almost like you had to find the spot, too. And everybody that I brought over to the shop, like, let's say, my production manager of, of my previous show and my brander, they all hated it. They all said, you've got no visibility. you got nothing here. You, you, you're going to waste your money. You know, people are not going to know you're here. And I just, I just kind of stuck to my guns, and I said, no, it's, it's going to be really good. It's going to be a good spot, because the neighborhood is a great neighborhood. So I knew there was a, a lot of walkers, and I knew the neighborhood itself would, would support it. So you went against the experts. You went against the real estate experts, some of the retail, some of your buddies, and you said, you know what? This is my passion. This is where it's going to go, and that's what's going to work. Uh, uh, an interesting step. And when we come back from the break, we'll see what other original thoughts and ideas that Peter had that he took to the full extent. Location, location, location on today's Entrepreneur with our guest Peter Balawanian of The Spice Station. Inspiring stories from outstanding business people, Dan Delmar, along with Joshua Miller of Fuller Landau on today's Entrepreneur and our guest Peter Balawanian of The Spice Station. Now we're talking about location. Your first location, Silver Lake, you said it was behind a building. How in the And, and you had friends and trying to get their opinions and their ideas and you just went against the grain. Why? I had a gut feeling. I, and plus, the, the space itself was really ideal for what I wanted to do. It had a water fountain. It had a patio space for me to expand and do, like, outdoor cooking events. It had a, an, ec- an extra building that I ended up taking six months down the line and turning it into my tea room. So I, f- I just saw the space. Because in California, it's summer most of the time. Mm-hmm. So you could use your outdoor space. The building itself wasn't that big, but... With the outdoor space and the entrance, it became a really nice space. And I really felt good about the neighborhood. I felt like it was, after I did all my scouting, it was probably the eighth or ninth place that I looked while until until I found it. Was it a long process? Uh, no. I, I basically decided to open up a spice shop, and within three months, it was turnkey open store. 
So finding the place took me a month and then two months building the space up. As in building it yourself? Yeah, I built it myself. I decided to, to do it from scratch. So uh, my, my angle was I wanted to work with recycled wood and reclaim wood. I felt like it would really represent the business. And I even have a sign in the store saying no kills, uh, no trees were killed in the making of the mm-hmm. store. I went in and picked up free wood uh, pallets and things like that and turned it into counters. And then I even bought recycled wood in California where, you know, it's, it's a, it's, it's, there is a business there as well. But, you know, I had to, have to take off those nails and I have to sand it down and then, and then stain it and then build it up myself. At the time, um, I'm a decent kind of handyman. But obviously, it's, it's easier to do it with a partner. So my wife's uh, brother-in-law is a really good handyman. And I flew him in from upper state New York, and he helped me actually put up the shelves when the time came within a week. Now, you said the store was recessed back. How do you get people to know where you are? What, do you, what did you do for marketing back then? Well, I had a great sign on Sunset. <laughs> you know, uh, My brand, the colors and everything were very attractive. And I, and I just felt that uh, the, what I was doing and what I was selling in the neighborhood was just going to be able to sell itself. And the, the idea of them finding the store became part of the, the, the charm of the store. So now I have people walking in and they're like, oh, my God, you know, just the reactions. We'd get reactions like that, every person walking in. Be like, oh, my God, it's like walking into another world, you know. And I think that's what worked really well for the business itself. I detect some con- a lot of confidence there in your product. I think uh, in order to have uh, that kind of confidence, you have to really believe in, in your product. And even though you're sort of hidden away, your, your attitude is that they'll come to me, right? Yeah, I, I really believed in that theory. What was it? It was an Austin Powers movie or something that they said, just build it and they will come. But the, there's a comedy <laughs> well, that, that and Field of Dreams, but field yes. Of dreams. <laughs> well, I, I really believe in the fact that if you do have something really special and if you believe in it and if it's something unique, because I, w- I didn't have any competition. Believe it or not, LA does, didn't even have a spice store, like a reasonably, like a spice store. They had grocery stores that sold spices. Um, I would go buy my spices from ethnic stores. And it was difficult because if I needed Mexican spices, I'd go to the Latin Quarter. If I needed Asian spices, I'd go to the Asian markets uh, and so on. So I I felt like what I'm doing was something very unique. And I felt like it was going to be appreciated. And it was. And we'll we'll hear about this unique experience and how it expanded to not one other location, but two and three other locations and where that story will take us. Today's Entrepreneur on CJAD, it's 7.23. 7.26 on Today's Entrepreneur, our guest, Peter Balawanian of The Spice Station. And we're talking about uh, Peter's confidence in this product, especially since his first store in L.A. was a bit sort of far removed, not very visible. Uh, coming here to Montreal, you now have two locations, one on Monkland, one in the Plateau. Uh, how did you go about deciding which locations were, were going to fit your brand best and which neighborhoods would work best for you? Well, when I felt like expanding, I wanted to... Uh I wanted to open up in Canada, obviously, because I'm from Montreal and it'd be great for, for me to have stores here. But believe it or not, Montreal wasn't my first pick. Uh, my list of cities in Canada was Vancouver, number one, Toronto, number two, Montreal, number three, even though Montreal was the easiest one to do for me. But I felt like Vancouver was uh, a lot more like California, uh, segregated in, the, in a sense, in, the, in neighborhoods, where Montreal's, Montreal is a lot more savvy. You know, they, people in Montreal know what they want. They can go get it. They don't have problems going to markets, like ethnic markets. They don't have, a, have issues with that. So I thought that that would be a bit more uh, more competition for me. But when I started doing my location scouting, 
it took me, I would say, six months or maybe five months from the time I started thinking about opening a store in Canada. Took trips to Vancouver, saw a couple of places, but the price was too high. I mean, I know what I, I can pay for mm-hmm. my space. I'm not selling diamonds. I'm selling spices. So it's not like uh, my overhead can be high. It has to be a small, cozy store. has to be at the right location. and has to be at the right price. And that's how I jump onto, you know, locations. And is that why Van- one of the reasons why Vancouver was ruled out? It was just too expensive? I, I just haven't found the spot yet that would fit my business. Uh, and Toronto, the same. But Montreal, I found it. And the minute, the minute it fell into my lap, I didn't even think twice. I signed a 10-year lease. And that was the Mile End store on Bernard. Uh, it was a great spot. And I felt like this is the neighborhood in Montreal that can grow out of here. Even though I was looking into Monkland as well, but there was nothing available at Monkland at the time. Did you keep a similar look to the California store? Oh, it's almost identical. Uh, same same concept. I built the store again, reclaimed wood, recycled wood, same look, same inventory, same prices. Now, moving back to California just for a quick minute, you had the one store. At what point did you decide, you know what, maybe I should expand beyond this one store? Well, you know what what happened? I, I started getting a little paranoid because when you have something good, you think that everybody wants it. And I thought that everybody that was coming in with a camera was going to literally steal my idea and open up another shop in L.A. somewhere, and I'd have competition. So within six months, my first store was open. I opened the second store in Santa Monica, which was on the west side, right by the beach. Beautiful spot. A very big store, actually. And... Um, I had two stores in LA within six months I was open and it was great because I felt like okay no one's going to come into LA and no one did I kind of cornered that market in LA and I got a lot of publicity and I got a lot of free press and when we come back one of the things we're going to talk about is what was Peter's marketing strategy was it something to pay did he try and get the free publicity Uh, and of course as you grow your stores the economies of scale and where you buy the goods certainly help out. And that's what we'll explore when we come back. Peter Balawanian of The Spice Station, our guest on Today's Entrepreneur at 7.30. 7.35 on CJD 800, Today's Entrepreneur, a program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business. Dan Delmar, along with Josh Miller of Fuller Landau. And our guest this evening is Peter Balawanian of The Spice Station. And a really interesting concept, very unique, and a couple of locations here in Montreal. Uh, how do you get the word out? Uh, you're a fairly new business. Do you, did you have a marketing strategy from the beginning, or are you letting things happen organically? Organically was the way to go for me. I mean, the grassroots uh, marketing plan was was probably the most effective way because if you have something that's really special, sometimes you get so much free advertisement because people want to talk about you. And if you and if you actually put a budget towards advertising, all of a sudden all of these people that wanted to talk about your store or your business stop getting less and less because you're already advertising. So I, I had the approach where I said, you know what, I want the store to kind of get the word out and people enjoy what we have and the experience that they get and tell a friend and two and three. And believe it or not, I mean, it worked. It worked from day one. From the first month we were open, we had bloggers, food bloggers talking about us on their sites. You know, they had followers of like 30, 40, 50,000 people. Um, we got a lot of free press from LA Times to LA Weekly. And then, obviously, food and wine picking us as best new shop in the first six months we were open helped us quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And then from that point on, it was like Huffington Post, uh, New York Times, Sunset Magazine, one after the other. They just picked us, picked us, talked about us, put pictures in their magazines. And I didn't spend, other than spending like $150 in, in 
flyers and postcards for our grand opening for our neighborhood, I haven't spent a penny in advertisement. Similar in Montreal? Not very much uh, paid advertising, similar effect. I haven't spent any money in Montreal either in advertising. I find that the, the, if I'm going to spend anything right now on on uh, with the store associated with the business, it's more about building my inventory up and having a lot of different choices and varieties. And I find that it's worked the same way in Montreal as well. Within the one year that I've been here with the Mile End store, it's been actually a year and a half, but we've been in every major publication. We were in the Gazette, we're in the La Presse, we're in Devoir. I mean, almost everything almost everything that was published out there, we, they had us in there, even Chatelaine magazine. Do you think that if you did spend any money on advertising, your sales or your turnover would be even better? Probably. I mean, I think eventually the goal would be is that uh, I find that if I have 30, 40 stores across the country, Canada and the U.S., up and running and going that's when I could start pumping in some money in advertising. So it helps every single store. That's my approach. Doing it for one simple store and then pushing that store, I think it, the overhead's way too high. Like I said, the spice business is not, you're not, we're not making like millions selling. We're just making a good return on our product. And we have to be very careful on how we spend that money. Now, when you go into opening a store, do you, do you come with a plan? I mean, it, you might not, as you said, it's, it's low overhead, but it's, it's low priced items do you expect to make money on day one how do you what's your thought process when no, you're not, opening a store not at all i uh when i when i opened my shop the first year i knew for at least a year i'm not going to make any money i i accept that i think any business owner that's opening up a new business should understand that it takes at least a year to a year and a half and sometimes even two for even to break even if you can break even within a year and year and a half you did great you did your job like and if you're losing money in the first six months expect it if you start panicking out and start changing the way you want to do your game plan, your business is going to suffer. And a lot of people, I, I see them doing this mistake time and time again. They just don't get it. But they want to open up a business and they expect it to make money right off the bat. And funny thing is when you do open up a store or a business right away, the first month might be great because, you know, everybody's coming to check you out, you know, or you advertise and you get the word out. And then you got two, three, four months afterwards. It's kind of like, oh, what happened? Our business is not going good. Oh, my God. And they start panicking. And the minute they start panicking, you know, you start making mistakes. And you, you got to stick to your guns and you got to stick to your plan. Now, you're talking about uh, the supply of your product and expanding your product line. Let's talk a little bit about the supply chain and, and not knowing, I, I don't know where your spice background comes in, but where did you start with finding all the right spices and herbs and, and all the dry product that you sell? Where's your first? Do you, did the suppliers trust you? How did you, did you travel to them? How did, how did that all come about? Well, it all started with just knowing the product. I think if you know your product, it helps quite a bit. Once you know the product and you can tell the difference in what you're looking for and what's good, then obviously when you're having a conversation with somebody that's in the same field, they respect you immediately. If, you, you know, if you're opening up a business and you're saying, well, I want to have product, but you don't even know what product you're going to carry, and then all of a sudden you're trying to communicate with people, people are going to take advantage of you. But I, I had a plan. My plan was... I want to eliminate the middleman. I want to eliminate the distributor, the food distributor, because that's what most restaurants and most people that buy spices get them from. So I, I kind of started contacting the harvesters, you know, all the way to like Indonesia, Bali, to get vanilla beans and nutmeg. Even when you were starting out and buying smaller quantities? Absolutely, especially when I'm starting off, because if I'm starting off and I can contact them directly and if I can, get a, if I can build a relationship with them, and it doesn't, I don't have to buy a big quantity from them. If I can figure out a way of doing it so that they know who I am, and they want to work with me, then I can always find a, a back door, which I did. I kind of piggyback on 
they're importers. So I, I could deal with the harvesters directly and then order from them, but still pay their importers when they bring it in with a fee. But my deal is with the original harvester. So I kind of have, I'm in the loop right off the bat, and it, it really worked out for us. No stepping on any toes in that process? No, no, because they don't see me as a threat. They see me as a small shop, you know, and it's not like, uh, and I'm dealing with importers that are dealing with like big companies that are bringing up products like containers full. For them, for them to just get a deal from the harvester directly, I never had a problem so far. And I have over 65 different places I get my, my products from. And I'm sure the quantities that you've been purchasing have been much higher these days. They grow as I open more stores, and that's how my buying power becomes stronger. Uh, with every store I open, it becomes easier for me to buy more product and be able to be more competitive in, in just pricing and uh, obviously make more money. Now, we don't have much time left, but let's talk about financing. You're starting up a new store. You're building everything from scratch. You you need to keep your overhead low. Uh, how do you, was it, was it your own funds that you come in? Did you rely on any financial institutions? How did you get the, the, the dollars to, to survive? That's where my producer abilities came into play. Um, most you didn't of my produce li- money. <laughs> yeah. Most of my life, I've, I've been doing projects. And every time I do projects, you, ha- you have to make people believe in your project and put their money in there. So I think that that kind of rubbed off on this business. And when I, had, when I created the idea of the business, I, I, you know, I created a business plan. I, I did the whole return on how long and you know, kind of did the whole process. And I approached people that I knew, no strangers, because I don't like working with people I don't know most of the times. I like to get to know people, especially if I'm going to take their money or if they're going to give me their money. There has to be a relationship there. And like that, I, uh, I was so convinced that the business was going to do well that I would almost guarantee on my own self, like with myself saying, I'm going to guarantee that money even if something goes wrong. So there was people that believed in me anyways, and they've seen my past work, uh, way I, the way I do business. They they figured that I'm not going to just jump into something that I'm not familiar with. You did plan. I mean, there was you used a, a created a business plan or some some forecasting to show them, hey, I'm not just going in blind. Absolutely. I I uh, my first first store. I even instead of just opening up a store, I built an LLC prior to it. With the LLC, I had uh, business uh, friends that joined the business, put in money. They had a business plan in front of them, and the idea was that I was going to open up twenty stores within five years. And that's my game plan to hit that 20 mark within five years. I'm in my third year of operations. So you're on track. Never, never any banks, never any outside financial institutions? No, never. I don't owe any money to banks. I don't have, uh, I don't deal with that. Even my vendors, everything's COD. So all my products paid for. I don't have to worry about, you know, not paying my customers, my, my vendors. I feel like it's a good way of of doing business when you don't owe anything to anybody you can you know you feel good about selling selling stuff in your store and you're not worried about replacing it after because that money that you're getting is always going back into the business and it's a it's a it's a system that you can apply and it can work really well so that's why he's so relaxed and calm yeah and and, <laughs> and there's so much more to the story there's so many more questions but as as we run out of time we can certainly hear uh, the conviction the passion the 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 knowledge of the product and the the the, you just stick to your guns and you know what you want and and certainly for entrepreneurs you got to stick to your guns you got to you know certainly certainly can ask the questions when you don't know or 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 don't have that knowledge in a specific area but know what you want go after it use your resources from past lives and uh and make it happen from there 
And I think the, the context of an L.A. and a Canadian or U.S. and a Canadian shop is rather interesting. And, and I think we're going to talk a little bit more about that uh, when we come up after the break. Tax issues across the border. Ernie's going to help us out with that on Today's Entrepreneur. It's 749 on Today's Entrepreneur. Inspiring stories from outstanding business people, Dan Delmar and Josh Miller of Fuller Landau, and our guest this evening, uh, Peter Balawanian of The Spice Station. And we also bring into the conversation Ernie Furt, tax partner at Fuller Landau. And, well, he's going to talk about taxes. And, and I think, you know, as we talk about, uh, you know, stores in, in L.A. and stores in Montreal, there's certainly a number of issues that individuals, when they're crossing the border, if they're living here and or U.S. citizens have to face. And, and I think, Ernie, you can certainly enlighten us on some of the challenges that they have. Well, many people, when they come to Canada, if they immigrate to Canada from the States, they think they're done with U.S. taxes. And in reality, when you're an American citizen, you always have to file a U.S. tax return regardless of where you are. And a lot of people are saying to themselves right now, well, does that mean I have to pay tax in both jurisdictions? And the answer is no. If there's a treaty between the jurisdiction that you are in, which is Canada right now, and the United States, then you're going to be paying tax in one jurisdiction but reporting in both, unless you have income that's coming from from U.S. sources and income that's coming from Canadian sources, then your return gets rather complicated. But there's a lot of people that that came here many, many years ago and have never bothered filing a U.S. return because they didn't think they had to, and they weren't aware that they had to. So over, over the course of time, the IRS has become a little bit more diligent in asking taxpayers to file these returns, and these people are trying to do these returns and determine that, oh, we got a little bit of a problem. We owe tax because we can't claim certain deductions. So over the course of the summer, uh, in June, the IRS announced some streamlined procedures to get people online with filing. And in September, uh, on August 31st, effective September 1, they came up with a streamlined program. I call it like almost like an easy pass program. So in reality, if you do not owe a lot of U.S. tax, potentially under 1500 bucks, when you do this U.S. return, then there won't be any penalty provisions. You know, you just have to comply with certain things. So you have to file back for three years. So we're looking at 11, 10, and 9. And you have to file uh, some foreign bank account report forms for six years, as well as answer a questionnaire. So you're telling me that uh, some kid, newborn, born in uh, Florida, uh, lives there for three months of his life, family brings him back to Canada has never obviously worked in the States, uh, lived there for a few months, was born there, probably on his passport. It says where he's born, his Canadian passport. So you're saying that this gentleman, this entrepreneur, must report in the United States. Anybody who is a U.S. citizen has to report in the United States. So it's an unfortunate accident of birth in in this particular instance. And because of that accident, that person has to file U.S. returns. And it's and I, I is it just about the taxes? Like if you don't owe taxes, there might still be some reporting. Are there penalties if you don't file, even if there's no taxes owing? There's penalties if you don't file certain forms, especially if you own uh, corporations in the states. And if you don't file forms, penalties can be as high as ten grand. And not filing these foreign bank account forms, which is uh, a problem for a lot of people, also can result in very very hefty penalties. This way, if you fit within the parameters of the new streamlined approach you can get rid of these penalties and not have to deal with them and then continue filing your U.S. returns on a go-forward basis. So the IRS and the U.S. government is trying to 
make nice, yet they're collecting all the dollars they can to fill their $16 trillion deficit. Mm. <laughs> Sounds like a normal government play, if you ask me. <laughs> uh, I think when we, when we come back, we'll, uh, we'll explore and maybe we'll hear a little bit of the differences uh, in L.A. and Montreal from Peter about uh, kind of operating and filing. And Peter of the Spice Station will talk about his one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur. That's on the other side. Remaining moments of today's entrepreneur are guests Peter Balawanian of the Spice Station and Ernie Furt, tax partner at Fuller Landau. And uh, Josh, we're talking cross-border tax issues. And, you know, Ernie, you were mentioning about the forms and information to file. I mean, it sounds a little onerous, a little complicated. Is there a lot of information to provide? There's some information to provide. We effectively, you know, in order to, to do this for you, we need your last three years Canadian tax returns. We need to know what type of income you had uh, in a tax-free savings account in Canada because a tax-free savings account in Canada doesn't give you the tax-free status in the States. That income is taxable. Uh, same thing for RESPs. We need to know your amounts that you contribute and the amounts of earnings in your registered retirement savings plan or, or uh, registered retirement income fund in order to profit from an election on the states to defer taxation until you actually withdraw money from the plan. And for purposes of the foreign bank account reporting, we just need to know the type of accounts you have, you know, the name of the financial institution in which they're held, their account number, uh, mailing address, and if the account is a joint account or not. Uh, and we need to know exact dollar amounts for, for valued highest currency, uh, the highest value over that six-year span, so uh, year by year. So we have to file those reports on an annual basis from 2006 through 2011. Peter, you, you filed your co- the company, the Spice Station, has filed tax returns on both sides of the border. Are they equally complicated, equally simple, without going into too much detail of all the, the technical side? No, um, I would say they're equally simple. I mean, especially if you're working with people that are competent and... You know, I, I try to have people around me that, that guide me in the proper direction, specifically with taxes. So I don't get myself into trouble. <laughs> so the IRS is no more uh, mean or onerous than Revenue Canada or Revenue Quebec or vice versa. I, I would have to say yes. I mean, they both have uh, a game plan themselves, and their mm-hmm. game plan is to you know make sure that uh, you know you're paying your taxes. And as we come to the end of the show, as we normally do, Peter will turn to you and say, in your in your experience over the many years, whether it's producer or spice station, what one piece of advice would you give to today's entrepreneur? Um, I would say something that's always worked for me has always been to believe into some believe in something that really you're passionate about. If you are uh, not passionate about something that you do, you're not going to be able to survive through the tough times. In my case, everything I've done, I really enjoyed doing. So it helped me go through really difficult moments, times that I didn't make money or lost money, and made me still, you know, feel proud of my accomplishments. So I would say all the time, if you're going to do something from opening up a spice store, which I I would suggest not to (laughs) because I'm doing that. uh, But if you're doing any kind of business, just believe in it. Believe in it, be passionate about it, and, you know, and, and really fight for, fight for what you really want to do as an accomplishment. Obviously, surround yourself with the right people. And Dan, certainly what I take away, and you know, it was, it was said in a number of areas during the, during the show, but it's stick to your guns. If you, you know, as, as Peter's saying, if you believe in it and you know it's the right thing to do, stick to your guns because you know your business and your product and your service and your capabilities better than anybody that's around you. You can listen, you can take it all in, but you're the one that's on the line. You're the one that's on the hook, and it's 
your guns out there that you got to stick to. Thanks to our guest, Ernie Furt, tax partner at Fuller Landau, and Peter Balawanian of The Spice Station. And thanks for listening to Today's Entrepreneur. We're back next Monday night at 7 p.m. on Newstalk Radio, CJAD 800.